We prayerfully use every single week. Okay, now uh, let's turn our attention back to reconciliation because that's what we've been talking about. This wonderful and painful process of reconciling with people. It's difficult, isn't it? And I'm, I'm grateful that you all ice skated in this morning. I'm, I'm grateful to see you all this morning. Uh, if you're on Facebook, greetings. You are at home safe. We will be ice skating home afterwards. Uh, we are turning our attention to Matthew chapter 18. Everybody say word. Um, not so much word over here. There we go. Word. Matthew chapter 18, uh, where our ongoing discussion of how do we process relational friction? How do we reconcile with those who have hurt us or those we have hurt? And, and we're looking at this concept called forgiveness, which is really central to the discussion of relational friction. How do we release debts that we have accrued or that others have accrued with us. I told the story last week. I had a, a boss early on in my Christian life who hired me uh, to be a part of his general contracting team. And, and I would go in and I would do uh, demolition. I love to demo buildings. He would give me a sledgehammer, a sawzall, and a big bag of anger. And he'd let me go. And uh, I would just tear buildings apart. And I loved it. But he got to the point where he stopped paying me, which I didn't really love. And it got to the point where it was not only a week, it was two weeks. It was like three weeks in, and I had not received my paycheck. And so I went to him, and he was a believer. He often talked about Christ. We prayed together a lot. And he told me that, you know what, here's the deal. He he couldn't pay me, but you know what, I needed to do what Jesus did. And I was like, oh, like Jesus, when he he pays his employee, Jesus, like that kind of Jesus thing? He said, you know what, what Jesus did, what, he took a loaf of bread, he prayed over it, he broke it, he blessed it, and he multiplied it. So you just need to go home, you need to pray over a loaf of bread, and then you need to break it, and then God will multiply it. And I was like, in my mind, I'm like, I don't want to break bread, but I want to break something. <laughs> I wanted to throttle him. You ever been in a place where somebody's doing you wrong, and you just want to take them by the scruff of the neck? Pay me what you owe me. I mean, he must have had some idea what was going on in my heart because he did quickly pay me. But I've been thinking about this, this reality, because I think we all have this tendency that when others go into relational debt with us, we have this desire to get paid. And I'm not just talking about finances. I'm talking about relational debt, relational friction. Whether it happens intentionally or unintentionally, we start to rack up relational debt with others and others rack it up with us. Our minds and hearts can start to operate like a bank account. And this is how the bank account kind of works. If somebody is making positive deposits in our life, we like them. It's nice. They're complimentary. They're encouraging. They're friendly. They go out of their way to help us. And all of a sudden, their account grows. And we're like, wow, you've got a surplus. But it's when they start making withdrawals. And typically, the withdrawals come in the form of of conflict or some type of friction uh, or injustice or disrespect, unkindness, broken promises, maybe even abuse. The list can go on. And then all of a sudden, we get pretty miserly with the account. And then all of a sudden, they're running a deficit. And we're like, look, we're going to extend credit only so far. And then there's a point where you're so far in the red, you're out. The bank account is closed. Do you ever feel like that with people? Do you have anybody in your life right now who is in the red? And you're like, there ain't no way this person can buy their way back into the black. Y'all know what I'm talking about? If you do, please give me some type of affirmation and recognition. We are on the same page here? Wonderful. So what do we do with that? What do we do with this relational debt? When this person owes us, 
If we're not careful, that debt that others owe us can grow into pretty staggering amounts, amounts where we're pretty tempted to take them by the scruff of the neck, demanding pay what you owe, and locking them up in debtor's prison until they pay the final penny. And I'll tell you, family, there's a much better way. Because if we're locking people up in debtor's prison in our heart, terrible, terrible consequences we're going to experience. And there is a better way. So often we talk about living the Christian life. And it doesn't seem like it's applicable. I mean, we read so much in the scriptures and we're like, how do we actually live this out? Well, I'll tell you, the topic that we have been discussing is very applicable. And it's Christianity in real life. It's not just the sterile theory that we sometimes kick around in Christian circles where, wouldn't it be nice if we live this way? No, we can actually live this way today. And this, this concept of forgiveness is, I believe, for applicable in every one of our lives. If I was a betting man, I'd be willing to wager that the majority of us have some type of relational debt when it comes to somebody else. Like we have a ledger sheet. Maybe it's a pocket. Maybe it's a little scoop of unforgiveness in our hearts. I would imagine that it's probably in the high 90 percentile range. Maybe you're sitting here and you're going, well, that's not me. I don't have any pocket of unforgiveness in my heart at all. And my response to that is two options. You've either done the really hard work of processing historical present day hurts and trauma, and you have brought it to Christ and you've learned a process where you start to view yourself as Christ views you, and you start to view others as Christ views them, and you experience the lavish forgiveness of God, and you can then lavish it on others, or you're just in complete denial. Those are pretty much the two options. So what do we do with this relational friction? Well, let's get back to the discussion where we left off last week. I want to start back with this one-to-one principle, Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. One author argues that if we applied this one principle, this one principle, the majority of all the relational friction we experience would be healed, straight up healed, if we would apply this one principle. Here it is. If your brother or sister or friend or neighbor or coworker or whoever this person is that you're in relationship with sins against you, and what is that? Sins against you. They miss the mark as it relates to relationship. Okay, they have somehow failed you, or there's been some type of disagreement, or maybe some misunderstanding, or somehow this person has let you down. You go to them and tell him his fault. Be careful with this. <laughs> I'm going to give you a couple of caveats here in just a moment. Just hold on to the fact that you got to be careful with this. Between you and him alone, how many people are involved at this moment? Eight. There's that person and the six other people you've told. Isn't that how it goes? Oh, and it expands exponentially with Facebook, doesn't it? Isn't that wonderful? We're like surprised. We post something on Facebook and a thousand people hear about it. How did you hear about that? Well, you posted it on Facebook. Oh, others can see that. I thought I was the only one. Anyway, so between you and him, how many people are involved in this situation right here? Two. Count them. One, two. The person and the other person. And if he listens to you, that is if there's some sense of, a way of like awareness, like, wow, I'm sorry I did that. Wow, that's hard. You've gained your brother. So here's a, a couple of caveats. We've got to be careful with our heart because some of us have the spiritual gift of criticism, 
Uh, I'm not going to point out any names, but if you have a, if you're, if it's really easy for you to be critical towards other people, like you can look at somebody and just very quickly dress them down and you're just like, you, you have this spiritual gift. Some of our spouses have this spiritual gift and the other spouse is so grateful for it. Um, the spiritual gift of criticism. Some of our coworkers have this gift. It's such a beautiful gift. Um, here's an anecdote because what you have is a virus. You have a virus. It's called the Planck and Speck virus. Have you not heard of this? Doctors have been diagnosing it in staggering numbers. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye? Isn't that interesting? It's so easy to see the junk in somebody else's life, but to miss the staggering stacks of problems in our own. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye? Because it's easier. So much easier to look at somebody else's junk, but not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye? So apply that back to the one-to-one principle. You don't walk up to somebody with a plank sticking out of your face and going, hey, uh, you got a speck in your eye. No, first you do the hard work of saying, Lord, I have a tendency to inflate my own virtue and inflate the faults of somebody else. So if that's what's happening right now, if I've got a big giant plank in my own eye, if I've got some issue that I don't want to deal with and I would rather just go and point out somebody else's flaw, please humble my heart. Please surgically remove the telephone pole from my face so I can be of some spiritual, relational, emotional benefit to my brother or sister or coworker or spouse or children or siblings, whoever it is, pull the plank out of my own eye. He goes on to say, you hypocrite. You who have a plank in your own eye and try to go and remove the speck from your brother or sisters. So back to Matthew 18. So we're thinking about this one-to-one principle. You go directly to that person in that context. Some of you have emailed me and asked me about verses 16 on down to 20. And I'm intentionally jumping over those, not because I'm wanting to avoid that discussion, but because it has a greater discussion and greater issues of church conflict. But I want to focus majority of our attention on just the relational component of our relationships in the day and now. There are times when there's church discipline and church discipline is necessary. The majority of our relational frictions have nothing to do with church discipline. They have to do specifically with our ability to actually go to our brother and sister and say, look, I got my feelings hurt. And I do it in a spirit of forgiveness and humility. That is why it's so important when Peter in verse 21 asks this irritatingly poignant and accurate, this is a wonderful question. Peter came up to him and said, because Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, the question is, how many times are you supposed to forgive them? Like, how many times before I can say, look, you're so far in the red, I can write you off. I'm canceling your account. Relationship closed. How often will my brother sin against me, that is, take out debt, and I forgive him? And I love how Peter, he's very magnanimous here. He's as much as seven times. Now, the common teaching of the rabbis, the rabbinical teaching was you were to forgive somebody three times. And after the third offense, you could write them off as an unbeliever. So Peter takes that common teaching, multiplies it by two, adds one. And so for every day of the week, he's like, should I forgive Monday through Sunday? What happens on that next Monday? And Jesus goes, no, 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 no. You want to talk numerical? We're going to talk numerical and we're going to talk extent. Numerically, we're to forgive limitlessly to the extent that Jesus forgave. Here's Jesus is what he said. I do not say to you seven times, 
but 70 times 7. Now, some of your versions say 77 times, and some of your versions say 7 times 70. And so the question is, Pastor, is it 77 times I'm supposed to forgive, or 490 times am I supposed to forgive again? The point is not how many times. How many times? Limitlessly. Wait a second. If I'm supposed to forgive limitlessly, what is that based on? The extent that you've been forgiven. So Jesus tells a parable. In this particular parable, he compares the kingdom of heaven to an earthly kingdom. So I want you to look at verse 23. And I will get there in my manuscript. There we go. The kingdom of heaven is like what? Compared to what? A hypothetical kingdom. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And so this particular hypothetical king has a particular hypothetical kingdom with particular hypothetical servants who owe him a hypothetical debt. And out of all these hypothetical servants, one is brought to him who owed a staggering amount. In fact, uh, the sum, when he began to settle these accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, any of you mathematicians out there remember how much that was from last week? How many years worth of debt is that, roughly? What's that? 200,000 years of debt. Some of you are like, my debt's not that bad. Well, I feel pretty good. (laughs) But when we start to realize that Jesus is not talking about financial debt, He's talking about sin. He's using money as an illustration. And when we come to realize our account with God apart from Christ, we owe an unpayable sum. We're not just in debt up to our eyeballs beyond that. So that whole erroneous idea that we can like earn our way or good works will somehow buy our way into his kingdom is proven faulty by the reality that we owe more than we could ever pay. The only way that that debt can be released is if it's, if it's what? Forgiven. We need a Savior to save us, i.e. the Father sending His Son to die on the cross for our sins, buried and risen. We place our faith so our sins can be forgiven. So the servant owes the startling sum. The king orders a short sale of the man's entire life. Verse 25, and since he could not pay, impossible to pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. And we look at this, and it's just like a bank assuming the title of a home and ushering in a short sale to get something in return. The bank is not going to get all that it is owed, but it'll get something. And so this king is like, look, at least I'm going to get something in exchange for this man's debt. When you realize how in debt you are spiritually, what is the response? Hmm? What's the response? What do you feel? What was the moment when you realized, like, you're separated from God because of sin? Like, I remember the texture of that day. And it, you know, it didn't come about through a bully pulpit. It didn't come about through some pastor screaming at me. It came about through this loving shepherd who was like, Chris, you got to realize there's a way that seems right to you, but it leads to death. The wages you're earning right now from your life, it's death. It's sin. And you're separated from God because of that. What is the response when you realize it's desperation, isn't it? 
And I see this in the heart of this, this particular servant in the story. We he, he, he see desperation, but then we see splagizomai, which is this beautiful little Greek concept word on display. Verse 26, so the servant fell on his knees and he implores them, listen to this, listen to this desperation, have patience with me, I'll pay you everything. How ridiculous, right? He owes 200,000 years of wages. Doesn't matter how patient that king's going to be, he'll never get paid. No, the heart of the king is on display. And out of pity, that word pity is splagizomai, out of mercy and compassion for him. What is the king feeling right now? What is his greatest concern? Getting paid or his servant? You notice that? You see, see, compassion stirs our heart for the person, not for the debt. The same as the heart of the father of the prodigal son. His heart filled with splagizomai. He didn't care about the debt. He cared more about the relationship with the son. Out of pity, he says this, you were released and forgiven. And there we find the two principles that we looked at last week of forgiveness. First, to release. As he swung wide the gate of debtor's prison and let him go free. This was not a staggered or structured parole where if there was a, another injustice done or for another debt accrued, he would immediately be brought back to prison for a greater sentence. He was released. And not only was he released, he was forgiven. I love this. Total canceling of the debt, giving up the right to pursue any form of future payment. It is paid. You were released. So the question we have to ask is, what type of impact should this have on the servant? What type of impact should the lavish and limitless forgiveness that Christ has extended to our account have as it relates to other people? What's that? Miss Pat? Grace. There's this sense of relational reciprocity, isn't there? Where if Jesus forgives me to this extent, then, oh, no. Wait, hold, that doesn't mean I have to. Oh, yes, it does. And I think one of the major reasons that we at times are kept from Christ, that some of us are at a distance from Jesus, because we know if we accept his forgiveness, then we're going to have to extend forgiveness to that person or those people. And I think some of us keep ourselves in debtor's prison because we don't want to receive forgiveness because then we know we'll have to extend it. So what does this servant do? On display, we see unforgiveness, but contrasting the heart of the king, we see the heart of the servant. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. We operate in denarii, right? That's how you pay your bills. Uh, Basically, a hundred days wages. So his fellow servant so you have this linear playing field. At first, it's, it's a, an authoritative. Like you have the king over the servant, but now you've got a linear playing field. You've got fellow servants. And that's what's fascinating about, as Christians, there's no hierarchy. There's a linear playing field. We're all on the same. We're forgiven, and we are to then extend forgiveness. But this fellow servant, very outside of the heart of the king, goes up to this one who owed him 100 days wages. He seized him and began to choke him. Did you all see that type of behavior from the king? Did the king seize his servant and choke him? This is this fascinating reality that we have a tendency to exaggerate the debt that others owe us. 
You ever find yourself ruminating on something that somebody has done to you over and over and over and over and to the point where they're like, you're like, they owe me 200,000 years of wages. Can't wait till I see them. I'm going to exact payment. We have a tendency to exaggerate the debt that others owe us. You ever walk up to somebody and go, I can't believe you did this, and you find out they had no idea, they didn't even mean to, it was a total misunderstanding? And you're like, oh, well, it wasn't, I guess it wasn't that big of a deal. I spent the last six months ruminating on it, but uh, pay me what you owe me. Hmm. Comparison is heartbreaking. Fellow servant, fellow servant. We're just fellow servants. Fellow kings of the kids of the king. He fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Is a debt payable? We always have this idea when that person comes to me and begs for mercy, when that person comes and pleads for forgiveness, when that person finally owns and recognizes how terrible they are, that's when I'll forgive. But here's the deal. If splagitsumai is not in our heart, no matter what they do, no matter how much they pay, it'll never be enough. The relationship here was not valued. The debt was isolated. If you will not pay me, I will not release you. When there is no splagitsumai, there is no forgiveness. Family, forgiveness precedes the encounter. And it starts with compassion in our heart where we value the relationship and the person more than we value the debt. Verse 30, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. There will be no release. There will be no forgiveness. And this is exactly what happens when we take somebody's debt and we lock them up in the debtor's prison of our heart and we carry unforgiveness. And we slam the gate and we throw away the key and we hide it behind our smile, our social media accounts, our careers, our lifestyle. It's always there. And we've become accustomed to the discomfort of unforgiveness. To the extent now where we believe that it's normal. But it costs us more than we can ever imagine. The parable continues, verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. Why are they greatly distressed? What's that? He was just forgiven. It's unfair. It's totally ridiculous. You've been forgiven 200,000 years worth of debt, and you're going to go take this guy and throw him in prison for 100 days' work? Really? And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, literally you evil servant. Why did mercy and forgiveness and grace not have its perfect work in your heart? I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Should there not have been splagizomai in your heart as it was in my heart? Uh, Verse 34, in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And here's the punchline, family. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I'm going to tie my shoe while you chew on that. 
It's my best view, I know. Does that verse bother you? So my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And some of us will look at passages like this and we'll believe that somehow this is relating to, to eternal forgiveness, that somehow God will revoke our eternal salvation if we don't forgive somebody else. That's not what is being taught here. In fact, we get so focused on our eternal security. Family, you're secure in your salvation. If you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are secure. That will not be revoked. But he's talking about your life right now. He's, he's teaching us that we will suffer right now in this life unnecessarily if we do not forgive from our heart. And I always love it when science catches up with the teaching of Jesus. So like 2,000 years later, scientists today are dealing with the consequences of relational friction and unforgiveness. And today they're looking at it and they're going, uh, there are consequences. In fact, uh, the Mayo Clinic just did a study and released a survey fascinating. Uh, in fact, I will argue that one of the greatest viruses, one of the greatest sicknesses that we have as a people, and I mean as a people here in these United States, the greatest sickness is resentment and unforgiveness. How, what's the percentage of marriages that end in divorce? How many? A lot. There's no, there's no like resentment or unforgiveness that happens during divorce, is there? Right? How about friendships that end and rivalries over a family's estate? You've never lost a close friend over business deal, have you? There's no resentment, unforgiveness. Here's some of the physiological and psychological con consequences. Uh, when we carry resentment, when we harbor it, we relive it, we, we amount we build up, we, we think on, we relive. It leads to things like high blood pressure, higher rates of anxiety and depression, heart disease, heart attacks. We always blame the French fries. It's always the French fries' fault. Darn you, fast food. No, darn you, resentment. Darn you, unforgiveness. That's what makes those fries so salty and tasty, right? Instead of facing them, I just eat my feelings. It's kind of true, though, isn't it? Possible links to cancer, higher rates of substance abuse. Did you know higher rates of substance abuse for those who carry resentment and unforgiveness? Higher than average relational dissatisfaction and just personal dissatisfaction. So, like... It affects, no, infects, and is a better word, infects all future relationships. You ever felt jaded because someone has done you wrong that all future relationships are jaded? That you automatically look at this person and you're going, I'm expecting you to fail. Unforgiveness and resentment is truly the poison we drink, expecting the other person to die. Why won't they die already? Because we're the ones that are drinking the poison. Unforgiveness and resentment is literally killing us as a people from social science standpoint when we forgive. When we live a, like the life of forgiveness, 
This is cool. Reportedly lower stress levels. Anybody else want that? That sounds great. Lower blood pressure. I like that idea. That means lower rates and a diminished risk of heart disease, substance abuse, and other health issues. How about greater joy, greater relational satisfaction, greater personal satisfaction? There is actually a perspective of greater hope for the future. And that's not even founded on Christ's forgiveness. So you want to talk about the exponential benefits of simple obedience as a Christian and as a believer? And that's really the foundation of our forgiveness towards others. It's not just so we feel better. That's a byproduct. The foundation is we have been forgiven limitlessly and lavishly, and we extend it to other people's account. And it's brilliantly simple. And it's confoundingly beautiful. But it's unbelievably difficult to do. So we're going to talk about briefly the reconciliation roadmap, and this is what we're going through tonight. We're going to go through this as an act of worship. We're going to sing, and we're going to look at release. If you're carrying some pocket, and you're just like, I just cannot find release from this. Sometimes I think God's just waiting for us to approach him on his terms and not ours. A few thoughts. I'm talking about reconciliation in this series, but some of us have been asking, Chris, what if, I, what if reconciliation isn't the purpose? Well, then just focus on forgiveness. Because you can't make a person reconcile. You can't walk up to somebody and go, you need to reconcile with me. <laughs> That's basically pay me what you owe me. Uh, not every relationship requires reconciliation. Not every relationship is safe. At times, it isn't even possible. What happens if the person has passed away? How do I reconcile with the gravestone? But forgiveness, that is possible. If you're seeking something in return from the person, it's not reconciliation. That's manipulation. If you're doing something to get something in return, that's just manipulation. Reconciliation prioritizes what? The relationship. So first step is forgiveness. You must first forgive them. This is just for your own sanity. This is just for your own experience in life. This is for your own spiritual and physical and psychological health. You must first forgive. And, and really it works in two ways. Releasing them from debtor's prison and forgiving and canceling the debt. That means you forego any ability to seek payment in the future. You've got to cancel the debt. Like literally write the debt out. And watch it just get incinerated and going, there's no more record. It's gone. Harboring unforgiveness and resentment is death. We've been forgiven the unpayable debt. That's the, that's the foundation of it. And so we in turn extend that same type of forgiveness, relational reciprocity. If you're going to reconcile with a person, if it's safe for you and for them to reconcile, or if they're alive and you can seek reconciliation, next step, you must seek them out. Waiting for that other person to seek you out is waiting for an event that most likely will never happen. You seek them out. Make the phone call. Set the appointment. Go have lunch. Remember the one-to-one -one principle, don't take six others with you. Don't post it on Facebook. 
This happened to me today. Dear diary, da, 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 da. I'm going to go ahead and copy, paste Facebook post. Get a hundred or so witnesses that agree with you. Yeah, that person is a jerk. I know. No, one to one. Remember Plank and Speck disease? We all can be infected. Criticism is not a spiritual gift. Third, when you seek them out, since they've already been forgiven and they owe you nothing, you're free to just confess and ask for forgiveness for the sins that you have done, the hurts that you have caused. If you honestly believe, and I'll say this, as children, if you suffered the hands of abuse, you have nothing to apologize for. That's the twisted part of abuse. Is the abusee always feels like they're at fault? If that's you, and you've carried around unforgiveness towards someone who abused you, you're not at fault for somebody abusing you. But you are at fault for harboring unforgiveness towards them. That sounds, that sounds rough, and it sounds unkind, but I'm saying that to me because I, I had to face that. I carried around unforgiveness for abuse that I received. It wasn't my fault, but it was my fault for harboring the unforgiveness. But in most situations, you're able to confess the hurts that you've caused, right? Like, we don't think of ourselves more highly than we ought to, but with sober judgment and humility, we recognize that we all have a tendency to fail and let others down. And then you leave the rest to them. You have built the bridge as far as you possibly can. Did you know the scripture says, as far as depends on you, be at peace with all people. So you have built the bridge out as far as you possibly can build it, and you've walked by faith, and you're like, God, I am I'm obeying, I'm waiting. And you know what the best part is? If they are walking the same road, they're building their side of the bridge, and all of a sudden you meet in the middle, and you know what happens at that moment? A huge stinking party. Just like the shepherd who reunites with the sheep, and the woman who finds the coin, and the father who reunites with the lost son. It's like, kill the fatted calf, we're going to celebrate. That's not always going to happen. But that party is waiting because you've done all of that work and you're standing there and you're just telling the other person, hey, I'm waiting for you. When you're ready, the party's going to happen. Wouldn't that be a great place to be? Yes? Yes? We'll pray that God does that type of work in our hearts. So Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace, your goodness. We love your word. We love you. It's hard, Father. It is really hard to forgive. Man, I can look at life and I can, I can just reason through it, Lord. I can tell you all of the legitimate reasons in my mind why I shouldn't forgive people. There are some people who have really done me wrong. <laughs> there are some people I've really done wrong to. And out of all of them, I've done you wrong the most. And you've forgiven me. Father, we're sorry when we don't extend the forgiveness you've extended to us. I speak to you with your eyes closed right now. Just listen. I get it. It's a big debt. And you feel justified in holding on to it. But please hear me, it's killing you. It is eating you from the inside out. 
And the Father wants to set you free from that, give you healing. Let him take it. And in Christ, let it be canceled. Let the debt go. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love for us that we can turn to you and ask for forgiveness and in your death and burial and resurrection there is a canceling of our debt. Oh Lord, how you love us. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, let's stand together. For it is time for us to go into the world in peace. And in blankets and coats. <laughs> Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering and share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all till we meet again tonight for a night of worship and reconciliation. You don't want to miss it. Do not forget, family. You are loved. Be loved and lavish that same love on others. Have a great time.